I'm Trudy Morgan Cole, and this is Shelf Esteem, the podcast I sometimes do, where I talk to interesting people about books they find interesting. And this is the last episode of the podcast for 2021. What a year it's been. Long gap since our last episode, which I think was in the middle of summer. Uh, so just a recap, and I don't think anybody really needs a recap of the last two years, but as I'm sure you know, the format of this podcast involved inviting two people not related to me, not living in my household, into an airtight room in my basement uh, to talk at each other at close quarters into a microphone for anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour. So not surprisingly, haven't done a lot of those since March of 2020. I've done a few special episodes, done an episode over Zoom, done an episode where I got people to pre-record little short clips, but the only sort of full-length episodes I've done have been last summer when my daughter Emma and I started a special spin-off series called Book Swap, where each of us would recommend a book for the other to read and then talk about it. That was a lot of fun. But then she went back to college, which she has a tendency to do a couple times a year. So that left me uh, with no real podcast plans for the fall. The ironic thing is this fall was actually a really almost perfectly normal time here in Newfoundland for COVID restrictions. Almost everybody I know uh, was fully vaccinated and would have been quite happy to come in and record some podcasts in the basement studio with me. And I kept thinking we'd get around to doing that. But the fall was also a really busy time for me. Um, I was, of course, reading and I have a lot to say about the books I read this year. But I was also getting used to a new job, a new position at work. And I had two big writing things happen this fall. I had my first ever play produced and staged, and I also had a new book out, Such Miracles and Mischiefs. The play was called The Mirror. Maybe you'll catch it if it's ever restaged again sometime. Uh, it was a great experience. So all of that made this fall kind of a busy time. And so with COVID numbers still low, and again, everybody I know pretty much fully vaccinated, I thought a great idea would be to line up some guests over the Christmas break, have them come in and record some podcasts, and then I can kind of release those over the first few months of 2022. Great plan. I had some wonderful people lined up. We had dates set for them to come in and record. And then, hey, you know what happened. If you happen to be listening to this podcast from the future, like you've decided to, uh, I don't know, listen to all my podcasts five years after they aired, uh, you might not know that here in Newfoundland, as in most other places, we had a massive wave of the Omicron variant of COVID, uh, highly, highly contagious, hoping that it's less severe, but we don't really know that yet. Uh, anyway, massive wave of that hit just before Christmas. And of course, everybody kind of agreed that, hey, the old recording in the basement studio model, uh, coming into other people's houses to chat for an hour at close quarters, maybe not the best time to be doing that. So I do have some great guests lined up for early 2022, and I'm hoping that if this wave kind of ebbs a little bit uh, sometime in January, early February, we can start getting those recorded and I can bring them out to you because I've got some people lined up that I'm really excited to talk to about books. But today um, I'm going to bring in the person that I am constantly excited to talk to about books, my summertime co-host Emma Cole, who is home for Christmas. Emma, as you may remember, is a writer in her own right, uh, an award-winning young writer, and also an undergraduate student in English at Acadia University in Nova Scotia. And before she goes back to Nova Scotia, we're going to record this episode, which is kind of a year-end wrap-up, and we're also going to record another book swap, which is going to be released sometime in January. So there is some more podcast content coming, despite Omicron, the Omicron variant. 
When I was growing up, my dad used to read these novels. I got to look up and see who it was by, but I want to say Robert Ludlum. Oh, yeah, it was definitely Robert Ludlum, the guy who wrote The Born Identity, The Born Supremacy, etc., uh, but also The Scarlatti Inheritance, The Matarese Circle, The Chancellor Manuscript, The Aquitaine Progression, The Icarus Agenda. So, I mean, the Omicron variant? Have you ever heard anything that sounds more like we should be living in a Robert Ludlum thriller? Admittedly, staying home, trying to book booster vaccines, canceling plans, and checking the daily case counts doesn't always feel like you're living in a thriller. But hey, we live in interesting times, and that's a curse as well as a blessing. So at least we've got lots of time to read. And while I know some people have had a hard time focusing over the last two years on books, a lot of people like me have really used that extra time at home uh, to crack the covers on a few more books than usual. And so Emma and I are going to talk just a little bit now about what we've both been reading this year. So Emma, once again, you've spent a year in university studying great English literature plus reading in your own spare time. Mm -hmm. um, any books that stand out to you from this year? So I don't remember when the last time we recorded one of these is. Well, we recorded book swaps over the summer, but okay. I think it's been last Christmas since we last recorded just a sort of generic, okay. you know, here's what I've been reading episode. Gotcha. Book swaps pretty much account for most of the books that I read for leisure during the summer. I feel yeah. like I did a lot of rereading and a lot of the book swap books over the summer. Yeah. I think that's what I did. So the books that I remember most clearly are the ones that I did just this past semester mm -hmm. and then the ones that I'm currently reading now or are on my to-read list for the holidays. So I did this one course over the semester called American Novel where we read six American, American novels, novels, as the name implies. Mm -hmm. And I think I've told you about some of them, but we can go through a few of the ones that stood out to me. For sure, yeah. I'd, yeah. I'd love to know what you, what you enjoyed or th had strong opinions about in an American novel course. Yeah, so the first one we read was, controversial pronunciation, Ethan Frome, Ethan Frome. I've always called it Ethan Frum, but to be I fair... I said Ethan Frum, and then I got to class, and everyone started saying Frum, and I was like, I guess we're just going to say Frum. I think it should be Frum, but it doesn't matter. I've, I've rarely heard anyone say the name of that book out loud. I also yeah. haven't read it, so I'm interested to know what yeah, you think. Yeah, it's very interesting, and I had to... I didn't have to, but I did do a uh, presentation on this novel, mm -hmm. and uh, I chose to talk about the idea of regionalism within this book, uh -huh. um, and I thought as... Uh, local historical fictional author. Mm -hmm. You're not a fictional author. The works that you write are fictional. <laughs> yes, my books are fictional. I am almost completely real. <laughs> almost Trudy Morgan Cole, nonfiction. <laughs> um, uh, I thought it was very interesting because um, Ethan from, from relies very heavily on like the sense of place in terms of like the literal location of the town mm -hmm. the location of where these people live is very very important and it's also was intended to be if you look at the like author's note like supposed to be bringing attention to this little corner of the world that um the author really liked uh -huh. um but also is about people whose lives are completely miserable and are like <laughs> impoverished and li are very sad so it's not exactly a tourism ad where no is, where is it actually set in it's England, set or? in i believe somewhere in massachusetts okay um but definitely new england if i'm wrong about massachusetts um but the person who wrote it edith wharton i think edith something wharton, edith yeah. wharton she was like a very rich New Yorker mm -hmm. who, like, summered or wintered in Massachusetts. And apparently, spoiler alert, she saw a couple of kids, or heard, I guess, about a couple of kids in the village hitting a tree while they were sledding and dying. 
which is similar to a plot point that happens in the novel. Oh, okay. So it's, I thought it was very strange that it was billed as like this regionalist novel. It's supposed to be, you know, bringing attention to this wonderful little place in the world. But again, it's just very sad and it's written by like a rich person kind of detailing the lives of very poor people. And mm. it comes across as maybe a little bit exploitive rather than appreciative. Interesting. Yeah. So do you think that like regionalism as a genre or as like an element of a novel should or has to come from someone who is from that place? Like, is it disingenuous if it's from an outsider? That is interesting. Of course, the example that immediately leaps to mind, and you're probably a little too young uh, to have heard everything surrounding this book, um, is Annie Proust's The Shipping News, hmm. which for so many people was like, that's the novel about Newfoundland and yeah. outside of... of this place it was the one thing that most people who read literary fiction knew about newfoundland but it was written by an outsider who came here in the summers i don't know if she's rich like edith wharton but mm -hmm. i mean she does all right as a writer and i feel like to most newfoundlanders the shipping news read as an outsider's portrayal of mm -hmm. this place and did have that merit very much you know oh these hardy people are the salt of the earth but also incredibly backward and um, look how simple they are. Yes, look how simple these, these folk are. Yeah. And, of course, we we all found the details that she got wrong very, very laughable. Yeah. Uh, like the roadside diner where you could get squid burgers. That's where, nothing. That's not a thing. That's, that's not a thing. I mean, every squid, every, every squid in Newfoundland. <laughs> every, I, every squid that I know. <laughs> every roadside diner in Newfoundland is what I'm trying to say. There's also not that many roadside diners. No, but, like, you know, little takeouts yes, in communities. Yes, sure. yeah, and they yeah. all serve chicken and chips fish and chips hamburger and chips that's it yes. those are your three maybe items. a turkey a hot turkey sandwich if, you're, if, if you got you're the lucky. deluxe it might be the hot turkey sandwich yeah. but yeah they, they know squid burgers oh. happening at uh, so that's i've just... literally never eaten squid let alone in burger form well i think that's probably a trend that's going to continue yeah. so you know that kind of thing was sort of like um oh she, like she kind of gets it but she kind of gets details wrong yeah. so i wonder what people at the time in whatever place in New England thought yeah. about Ethan Well, Tom. I think she got away with it because the town that she wrote about was technically fictional. Uh -huh. But it was, like, heavily based on wherever place it was that she stayed. Right. And I don't know, just something about that class divide is just really kind of stings of, like, yeah, look how oh, these people's lives are so much better even when they're miserable because they're, you know, so pure and, like, oh, salt yes, of the yes, earth. Salt and of the it's earth, like, yeah. I'm sure they would like to have a big house like you, Edith, though. <laughs> I think that would make them a little happier. I think it would, You yeah. know, apparently, and if I'm wrong about this, nobody correct me, um, <laughs> that Edith Wharton's family was the family on which the phrase Keeping Up With The Joneses is based. Oh, really? Because they were such a, like big affluent family like Worth is her Wharton is her married name or oh, something okay. and the Joneses is where she came from so like big money big oh, money oh big money yeah, yeah, yeah. interesting mm -hmm. yeah I do think I mean I think you can write regionalism effectively about a place that you don't come from or haven't lived what about come from away what about come the from musical because that's the people who wrote that are Canadian but not not Newfoundlanders but they did it seems like they did do a lot of like r actual research and talking to real people oh yeah right? and a lot of it is based on the actual interviews with the people of Gander yeah so. that feels like a better way to do it at least and a more m more honest way of doing it yes I think. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean we're, we're pretty big comfort way stands here I think so mm -hmm. uh, um, but yeah it's I feel you do get an authenticity 
in regional writing that's by people who actually live in the region. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's the same thing, you know, you don't want to, you know, narrow things down so small that people can never write about anything yeah. but their hometown. But yeah, I you, think, yeah. Yeah, you could also argue, I guess, that sometimes it does take an outsider's unbiased perspective to write about a place honestly. You could say that, maybe. Yeah, I don't think an outsider's perspective is any more unbiased, but it is outsider, and it has yeah. different different biases. Yeah, different, different biases, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's an interesting that's an interesting take on Ethan Fromm. Yeah. yeah. So did you did you hit on a lot of that in your presentation? I or? did. I tried to. It was only about ten minutes long, but that's kind of what I tried. Well, and also I had heard, um, I was listening to an old Canada Reads broadcast, uh-huh. and somebody I forget his name now um, said that all the great works are regional. And that was very interesting. He said that Shakespeare was very regional. Jane Austen's very regional. Even the Bible is very regional. So that was kind of my um, jumping off point. I think that's that. true. I think the kind of books that you get that are set in sort of like, this is any town USA can be a genre kind of fiction. Any town is no town. Exactly, kind of, yeah. yeah. And and sometimes people will say, well, I prefer to do that because my focus is on the characters, the plot or whatever. Yeah. But I would argue that, yeah, most great writing is rooted in a region, whether it's the region the author happens to be from or not. A sense of place, to me, is a really key part it of It makes a things a bit stronger, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. Hmm. All right, what else did you read this year that you had strong opinions oh, about? Oh, goodness, let me see. Um, what did I read? I read um, In Cold Blood by oh, Truman Capote. That's another one I've always heard of but never read. Yeah, so that one is, uh, it's called... It's called a nonfiction novel. It's very strange. I have I, I really have difficulty with the term nonfiction yeah. novel. Like it's creative nonfiction maybe, but yeah. to me novel implies, implies fiction. fiction. Yeah. Yeah, I think creative nonfiction would be a better label for it, but I honestly like while I was reading it, kind of forgot that it was supposed to be or that it is like a this true crime yeah. sort of sort of thing. So I was a little bit disappointed by it because as I was reading it, it's written so much like a novel. I got so wrapped up in the idea that it was a novel. I forgot that it was this true story. So I was waiting for like some kind of big twist or big reveal uh-huh. because one of the, basically the book switches back and forth between the people in the town where the murders happened and like the detective who's on the case and you know, the people in the town, how they're reacting, the family members, the friends, all that. And then the criminals who committed the murders who are on the run. That, those are the perspectives it switches back and forth between. And for the longest time, it did a bit of flashbacks and then a bit of present, you know, present mm-hmm. tense kind of stuff. Um, but for the longest time, the one scene that was missing was the murders actually taking place. Uh-huh. And for my mind, when I was reading this, thinking it was a novel, I was like, okay, there's only one reason they would leave a big gap in what is the most important scene in the novel thus far, which is that they didn't commit the murders, you know, like it's going to yeah. be a setup that like yeah, the yeah. criminals that we've been following actually somehow didn't commit the murders and there's something like else going on. Right. But then I got like three quarters of the way through and I was like, oh no, that is, it is just the simplest answer is yes. the, is what happened. Yeah. Um, and of course there were intricacies in like, you know, who did, which of the criminals did the actual killing and stuff like that. And that was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my expectations were a bit warped because I forgot of that. I forgot yeah. about that nonfiction aspect to it. But um, it's definitely an interesting way to portray any kind of true crime thing in this novel setting because it kind of works sometimes and then sometimes there's like long pages that are just like verbatim the like confessions that were written out by the criminals Uh and I think it kind of feels a bit unbalanced at times like that like it's sometimes is 
too kind of prosaic and then sometimes is too like um documentarian almost Mm -hmm. and I I almost wish it had kind of picked one or the other because I find it does stray at times it's interesting that true crime is such an incredibly hot genre right now in books but even more so like in podcasts and tv and stuff um and and in a way I think of in cold blood as being kind of the forerunner of true crime definitely Yeah. yeah yeah so in that context I imagine it would have been interesting to read So anything else from the American novel course that stood out? Yeah, so the most contemporary one that we read was The Road. (laughs) Which is... Again, so far you are hitting me with novels that I'm very familiar with, but have never read. Yeah, so, and I I told you this before, that it's, so it's a novel, it was made into a movie, and when I looked it up and I saw that the main character was played by Viggo Mortensen, I thought, that makes 100% sense. (laughs) If you had asked me before who played the father in the movie adaptation of The Road, I would have said Viggo Mortensen. It would have been your head casting. In my top three, yeah. So that's that's the vibe. Um, But yeah, it's like, it's strange because it's like a post-apocalyptic novel, which technically falls under the umbrella of dystopian. Mm -hmm. But it very intentionally does not do any kind of like world building at all because um this is the other book that i did my presentation on and uh i found it interesting how early examples of dystopia you have like kind of the george orwell type Mm -hmm. and going on to like handmaid's tale and stuff and continuing through into like the hunger games a little bit but there it starts to get a little muddled is um this idea of dystopia being about a world that has become overly structured. It's become, you know, under constant observation, constant surveillance, over-management. And it's very much about what the world has become, and the characters are kind of an excuse to show us how people navigate this dystopic world. Whereas by the time you get to, I think it was 2005 or 2006 that The Road is published, now post-apocalyptic is kind of be, kind of surpassing dystopia in popularity and it's very distinct from its predecessor in that it's not focusing on world building as much as character building Mm. so you have this story of a father and son navigating this post-apocalyptic world and the apocalyptic event is never named you get very very brief and very vague flashes as to what might have happened you never get a sense of how the world as a whole has recovered um you don't get a sense of like how what are is this just happened in america like what Mm. are other countries relations to each other what are other people doing and there was only like one tidbit that kind of pointed at structures that had um grown up after um this apocalyptic event and i found that really fascinating but it intentionally does not build out the world at all interesting it's just really about the characters which i think is yeah points towards the the trends in in dystopia the kind of political structures of early dystopia have been kind of superseded by these like personal um relations in post-apocalyptic interesting yeah now when you say the road i I mentioned to you this to you off mic earlier when you're originally reading it uh but for me it's a real podcast throwback because on the very first episode of this podcast what three four years ago Mm -hmm. whenever i started it um one of my guests was my friend elaine greeley who talked about her book club reading the road and how passionately she hated the book and i think (laughs) it was when when elaine said freaking barbecued babies um that i realized having people come in and talk about their feelings about books was a good podcast format. Yeah. Um, but 
it's interesting for me because you probably all also know this, and I'm pretty sure people who listen to the podcast do, that I have a pretty deep-rooted emotional inability to cope with dystopia. Mm. Like when you guys were kids, I had trouble watching Wally. I don't think I ever. I don't think I ever rewatched Wally. So that's like how I have issues with Wally. Wally was that was intense. It's intense. It's an yeah. intense movie. Um, and uh, the Bone Clocks by David Mitchell. I think I've said before is the book that really broke me for the dystopia, and I had nightmares afterwards. Is that David Mitchell? David Mitchell? No, not the funny one. The no. novelist one. There's there's two British David Mitchells, and one writes really really deep and serious novels, and the other one is just funny. I don't know. I thought like maybe Richard Osman. He'd start. He has. Yeah, he has novels. a brand. By the way, read Richard Osman's latest <laughs> mystery this year. That was great. Love his Thursday murder club books but uh, back to dystopia mm-hmm. I mean I was already having trouble with dystopia because of like my fears about climate change and it all seeming too real and then of course pandemic mm-hmm. so it's like I'm not going to read any of the big plague dystopias like no. station 11 but this year I actually discovered a science fiction author whose work is sort of post-apocalyptic but also hopeful like it's somewhere in that range between on the one hand, the sort of Star Trek vision of the future where everything's shiny and good and we go off mm. to explore the universe, and on the other hand, the road. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that is Becky Char- Chambers, okay. who I highly recommend. Um, I picked up her book, A Psalm for the Wild Built, which is the first in a new series called Monk and Robot. Um, and then I went back to her early series, which starts with A Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. And although the two series are set in different worlds... Uh, they have the same kind of sensibility, which is, yes, at some point in the future, human civilization is going to collapse, but it's we can... Fine. Well, not, not <laughs> fine. There's going to be a lot of loss, but we can build something beyond that. Yeah. And uh, in both those different series, I really like the way she imagined that. They're, they're realistic. I mean, to the extent that science fiction can be realistic. Mm. They're realistic visions of a possible future, I think. But they're also hopeful. That's good. The road is not hopeful. Not hopeful at all. The road is is very sad. Things start bad and they get worse. (laughs) And it's, yeah, it feels more like an experimentation in misery than any kind of, like... I mean, the plot is basically just they're traveling and bad things just keep (laughs) happening. And sometimes, like, one good thing will happen, but then the main characters will make a decision where you're like, that was not the right decision, and then things get worse. Um, And also, it doesn't use very much punctuation and no quotation marks. Yeah. Which I guess is like, oh, the atomic bomb blew away our quotation marks, too. We don't have punctuation (laughs) anymore. Well, I'm glad we We lost those in the event. (laughs) I'm glad we finally have an explanation for the disappearance of all the quotation marks. Yes, in this book, that's, it's the, yeah, yeah the radiation. The radiation eroded, burned, the eroded, burned right through the quotation marks. Eroded all the quotation marks. So, do you um, think a book needs to be hopeful? Um, for you, I mean. For me, um, I don't think it needs to be. I don't like to read sad novels very much. Hmm. I prefer for my novels to be hopeful. Um, I think it should be like an 80-20 split. That's a good Hopeful idea. and then kind of sadder ones. I just finished reading a novel that completely uh, absorbed me for two days, The Lincoln Highway by Amor Tals, who a lot of people will know as the guy who wrote A Gentleman in Moscow. And it has these basically five main characters with all really distinctive, interesting voices and points mm-hmm. of view. And about halfway through, thinking he's not going to give us four five really well developed mm. interesting characters facing all this peril on this unlikely road trip and have everybody make it safely to the yeah. end and so i'm re- loving but also reading through the second half going who's gonna who's die gonna 
Yeah, and uh, I will not give it away too much except to say that The Lincoln Highway is a great, great novel, but the ending is definitely bittersweet. Mm. And yeah, I've read enough books to know what's uh, what's coming around yeah. the end. The ending of The Road is interesting because it's like, it is weirdly hopeful in a way. Like, mm. not on a grand scale, because again, it's not really dealing with larger themes or the world at large, but just specifically about the characters. It kind of gives you a little ray of hope with which to me, either feels inconsistent with the rest of the novel, so you have to take it in the most pessimistic way, Mm -hmm. which is that the child actually did not get saved by some other well-meaning travelers and they're just going to kill and eat him or something. Mm, Or um, if it is actually hopeful and it is a good ending, as is implied by the way it's written, then it kind of... I don't know, it just doesn't fit with the rest of the novel, Mm -hmm. I guess. It either seems, yeah inconsistent or sadder (laughs) like uh, i think in context of the rest of the novel there isn't a way to read it in a hopeful way that doesn't either invalidate the rest of the book or yeah just not make sense Mm -hmm. um so it's an it's an interesting ending because he was like i mean the author had no problem doing horrible things to everyone for the for the entirety of the novel and I feel like I would have respected it a bit more if it just had a horribly depressing ending to fit with At the rest of it. At least would have felt the, consistent. It would have yeah. felt consistent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what and any others from the American novel class or just from? Um... Well, I'll we what we watched we read their eyes were watching God. Okay. Um, which I definitely found interesting. It's one of those ones that it takes you a bit to get into the rhythm of because um, it's set in the American South in. Uh, I don't know exactly when, but right after kind of the emancipation of the slaves. Okay, it's like so a, like 1860s, 70s, 80s? Maybe? Yeah, yeah. It's um like black people are like free, but like, you yeah. know, like uh, it's a bit iffy. Um, so it's written in a lot of like, it's one of those things where people are talking in like a local dialect and in an affectation and it's spelled phonetically. Oh, yeah. So like when people are speaking, it is written out the way you would hear it, you know, mm. to like make that accent and um, make that accent come through yeah. on the page, which is a little bit of kind of a learning curve to get through. And I think there was some author at the time who um, uh, really bashed it for being like low and base because it portrayed mm. like black people as being um you know like kind of stupid and, and comedic when really i think the author was just portraying them the way that they were and was not letting the was not letting the readers off easy by saying you can't pretend that these people don't talk the way that they do you know yeah so that was kind of an interesting read and it also had a, a very strong female protagonist it was very interesting to see her journey she was like married three times and then uh-huh. by the end of the novel she's single and she's thriving and she's loving Good life. Good for her. Interestingly, yeah. I also read one this year that was set uh, just in the aftermath of the American Civil War. Mm. Um, I might be a bit wrong about the timeline of that, but that's the vibe that I remember. Just okay. so we're clear. Well, the one I'm, I'm, I, I read was literally set right at the end of the Civil War and it was um, So Many Tomorrows, I think it's called, by Bethany Morrow and it's a reimagining of Little Women mm. but with four black sisters instead of four white sisters yeah. in, in that same time period. And I thought that was really good. I think it was somewhat limited by the fact that it was conceived as a YA novel as a part of a series because I felt like as an adult novel, there's a lot more she could have gotten yeah, into, yeah, could have gone a lot sure. deeper. But the the tie-in, the reason I thought of it with, with Their Eyes Were Watching God, is that 
I don't know if you remember it, it's a big plot of the later part of Little Women that Joe is trying to make it as a writer yeah. and her editors are like chopping up her book and everything. So the Joe or Josephine in So Many Tomorrows, or is this So Many Tomorrows or So Many Beginnings? I gotta go look that up. Hmm. The Joe character is also a writer and she's, they, although they are a black family who have been enslaved, they are as well educated as like it was possible yeah. for black people in the South to be at the time. And her sister is a teacher and her mother is all about kind of like, you know, black people uplifting themselves. And when she writes, Joe writes this story about her family's experience under slavery and these free northern blacks and white abolitionists want to publish it, but they ask her to go back and rewrite it in slave dialect mm, because they're yeah. like, nobody will believe that you you speak as well as you do, which I thought was a really interesting conflict yeah. that was not developed as much as I think it would have been in an adult novel. Yeah, definitely there is, and this kind of comes up in another book that we read, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. This, like, pull between you know, people wanting to, black people especially, thinking that the way to elevate themselves is to kind of conform to white expectations, mm-hmm. whatever those are, or to celebrate their blackness as it is. And yeah. sometimes those things are the way you expect, and sometimes in that scenario it's not what societal expectations would be. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Interesting. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. we have that here in a much lower degree because we don't have the racism along with mm-hmm. it, but you do have, like... Um, maybe not so much in your generation, but certainly in mine, people from around the Bay being told that they had to lose their accent yeah. and that you would sound uneducated and stupid if you spoke with a, with a Bay accent. So yeah. I guess that's, uh, it's, you know, it's common in a lot of places with strong regional dialect, but of course, you know, with, with the race, mm-hmm. with added racism is yeah. much worse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was pretty much all the books that we read for that class. We also read Housekeeping, which I don't have much to say, except that it features women being incredibly unhinged. And I love that. (laughs) Great. Housekeeping, I think I've said, uh, I said to you when you were reading it, has the distinction of being the only Marilyn Robinson novel I don't love. Yeah. Because I absolutely love all of her other novels and Housekeeping, which came first and, and I think is, if not her most famous, probably her second most famous next to Gilead. Um, I just couldn't get into it. I couldn't. Yeah, I I also had a hard time getting into it because it kind of started with like a family history. And then once, like I was reading it for quite a few pages and I was like, oh, it started now. Like I didn't. <laughs> this is it. This uh, is Yeah, I didn't understand when the story had started. So yeah, it, it didn't flow very well for me. But yeah, it just, I just love Sylvie, the aunt, just being fully unhinged just doing whatever and then at the end they just set their house on fire and leave (laughs) oh it's so good um no i don't have many deep thoughts about Mm -hmm. that just that it was yeah it was a a bit fun but not as not as striking to me as the other ones on that list one of the books that i did read this semester that was just for me was now for class was good citizens need not fear by maria riva or reva i don't know if you're familiar with that no i'm not yeah so it's a collection of short stories that are all kind of intertwined, um, set in uh, the USSR mm-hmm. right before and right after the fall of okay. the USSR. Um, and it's very interesting the way that it's all kind of woven together because it's different stories by people who live in the same apartment building and mm-hmm. sometimes it'll visit a character for just one story and sometimes it'll return and come and come back and uh i just thought it was a really good example of like a well-done collection of short stories and again very regional it was mm-hmm. i think the author has was either born or like her parents were born in the ukraine at that right. time or she has some kind of connection to it that she was able to base it on like family stories and so i think that regional aspect like we were talking about definitely comes through and makes it a a, a strong work as a mm-hmm. whole mm-hmm. 
And you know I love short stories, so. Yes, yeah. I know you do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're writing a lot of short stories yourself for your... Writing some. Some are being written. Some short stories are being written and others are not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you're a lovely short story writer. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, it's... Um, for those who don't know, I'm writing my creative thesis right now um, for my degree. And it is happening. <laughs> <laughs> well, writing a thesis of any kind, even if creative, is always, it's it's an endeavor, you know. Yeah, like, I found I, yeah, I didn't really do a lot of reading that wasn't for my classes, and I didn't mm-hmm. do a lot of writing that wasn't for my classes, so it's been kind of a, an off semester in that way, but I have a big old fat stack of books that I'm ready to read for the holidays. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So what's what's on those? Anything that you've either have read or are looking forward to that you want yeah. to talk about? Yeah, so well, I finished Good Citizens Need Not Fair, I think, just as I got back from my semester. And let's see, what do we have? Oh, The Best We Could Do, that graphic novel. Oh, I yes. completely forget the name of the author, so I apologize. That's okay. Um, it'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes. That's one that I got for Christmas, and I whipped right through that. It was lovely. I love a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Big Summer is the one that you gave me. Yes, which we're going to do for uh, for a book swap. Book swap, yeah. Um, the Box in the Woods, the Maureen Johnson one that for some reason I could not find in person for months and months and months. Um, I have a Lisa Jewell one. There's a new... David Levithan and Jennifer Niven book that I mm-hmm. need to read. Why does David Levithan write so many books with other people? I guess he just likes working he just that, likes way. Doing that way. I can't, I can't imagine I've, writing a book with somebody I know, but else. I feel like the majority of his books, if not just his recent books, have been co-authored with other people yeah, and I, I find mean, it interesting. except for the everyday and the sequels to that yeah. which are him alone most of the books that he's known yeah. for are co-written with co-written other people or like collections of short stories mm-hmm. or stuff maybe he just doesn't want to write a full length yeah, book on his own <laughs> it seems to me like it'd be more work to write a book with someone else but yeah, yeah you, gotta, you gotta balance you know what they what everybody wants and yeah. I mean I find writing books it's hard enough to balance what you want yourself without bringing other people into it <laughs> I know for this year, I'm I'm surprised how much nonfiction I've read that I really oh, yeah. love. And I have to talk about two standouts. Okay. One is a book that we both have, but I think only I have read so far, which is The Anthropocene Reviewed by John Green. I've read parts of it. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's a collection of essays, yeah. so you can kind of dip into and out of it. I bought a hardcover copy when it came out, having loved the podcast that it's based on. But then I also bought an audiobook copy and listened to most of it. Mm-hmm. And I just find they were the perfect 2021 reading mm-hmm. slash listening. These short little very reflective essays uh, the, the premise of the book if you're not familiar with it and the premise of the podcast it's based on um, is that John Green reviews really random things, yeah. elements of the human-centered world on a five-star scale. And so, you know, there's a hot dog stand in Reykjavik, and there's the Lasso cave paintings, and there's all just, just all kinds yeah. of things, uh, really random. But what they are, each of these essays is a little intro into kind of just reflecting about what it means to be human yeah. in this world, and I found that great. And another one, which I would recommend to you or to anyone, um, is by Irish writer Seamus O'Reilly called Did You Hear Mommy Died? Um, which doesn't sound like a really funny no. book, but it is. It is a hilarious memoir about losing his mother when he was six years old. Okay. And it is interesting because it is really poignant mm-hmm. um, because, you know, he did lose his mother. But it's also very much based around the fact that this was an Irish Catholic family in Northern Ireland in the 90s, in the era mm. when, you know, bombs were still yeah. randomly going off. Um, and... Uh, there were 11 children in the family ranging in age from something like three to 16 or something when their mother died. And their father, who was just this very sort of straightforward, hardworking Irish Catholic guy, just 
according to Seamus and all his siblings, just did a bang-up job of raising them on his own. And it, there's there's a lot of funny stories mm. in there about them, like, trying to take family vacations <laughs> with 11 kids oh and one gosh, dad yeah. and that, and about the various dogs they had and, and uh, the omnipresence of, of priests in their life, but in a good way, yeah. not, in a, okay. not in a negative mm-hmm. way. So it's a really, really, really funny memoir, and I just recommend it to everybody because it's so unexpected that you would read a really funny book about grief and yeah. loss. But yeah. Seamus O'Reilly, I don't know if you know of him from Twitter. He's the guy who got famous on Twitter. He was already a writer, but he was kind of low-key. He got Twitter famous for writing a thread about how, as a teenager, he was off his head on recreational ketamine and mm. ended up getting called into work and having to serve drinks to the president of Ireland. I think I do remember that. Yeah. Yes, and he just wrote about it in an incredibly funny way yeah. in this treat- tweet thread that went massively viral. Uh, and as he often says, and off the back of that, I got to write a heartwarming family memoir. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. it's so great. Yeah. Uh, and that that's definitely been one of my favorites this year. Yeah, that sounds lovely. It is. I got to look at my list to see if there's anything else that uh, I didn't get to talk about that was a favorite this year. What about you? Do you have anything? Um, no, I, that's, I feel like there might have been books that I read, but I don't remember them. Uh-huh. I need to, maybe my resolution will be to keep track of the books that I read. Oh, I read, um, I might have mentioned this the last time we talked, but I've been reading... The short stories of Charlotte Perkins Gilman. There's a oh, okay. collection, you know, one of the like chap- chapters they have, the like old classics, three for $10 or something. Yes, yeah. Um, a collection of hers that's called The Yellow Wallpaper, and it has The Yellow Wallpaper in it, but also has a lot of other really good um, uh, really good stories. And I love Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Catherine Mansfield as well. Mm-hmm. I was rereading some of her stuff over the summer. Two of my favorite um, short story writers. Oh, yeah, and the real classics of the genre. Yes. I also forgot when I was talking about... Um, uh, nonfiction on a much more serious note. Uh, Clint Smith's "How the Word Is Passed." Mm. I don't know if you heard if you've heard of that book, but it is a meditation on you know by a a very great contemporary Black American writer about the history of racism and particularly slavery in the U.S. But it's done through the I guess through the lens of him visiting a bunch of historic sites mm. like. Um, plantations where you can go as a tourist yeah. and other historic sites that are that are related to the history of slavery and just using that, you know, kind of as a means to reflect on the history of, of slavery. Mm. And another book taught in a very different vein, but also, I guess, race plays a role in it, but a novel that I think you would enjoy um, is called The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, okay. which is... Um, it's, it's written as if it were nonfiction. It is clearly fiction, but it's written like an oral history of this uh, 70s, short-lived 70s pop duo that was this white English boy and this black American woman who, like, uh, made two or three albums together, and then his, his career went on to mm. soar, and she kind of dropped out of sight. It's fiction, but it's written as though it were nonfiction, as though it were uh, an oral history. Love that. Yeah, it's really great, and uh, just just so drawn into it, and it's so much great stuff about music and pop culture and race and just just a lot of cool stuff. So that was one of my favorite novels of the year, and yeah. I would recommend it to you or to anyone. <laughs> Sounds great. So that about wraps up our talk. I think so, yeah. Thank Um, you for chatting with me. Well, thank you for chatting with me, as Mm -hmm. always. It's always great to talk about books with you. And we are going to be back um, in January with a book swap episode Mm -hmm. where we each read a book that the other has recommended. And who knows, maybe when you're home again in the summer, we'll do more book swaps. Yeah. Because it's always fun. It's very fun. 
As always, if you want to know more about any of the books that Emma or I discussed in this episode, you can go to my website, TrudyMorganCole.com, click on the Shelf Esteem link, and that will take you to a page with links to the episodes and show notes for every episode I've done of this podcast, including the current one. So you can uh, click show notes and have a look at the list of books that we've talked about. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, This wraps up my conversation with Emma Cole. And hopefully we will have more episodes for you in the new year if COVID regulations allow. In the meantime, read a good book and build your shelf esteem. 